This week, we revisit a past episode that's a favorite of ours. So please sit back and enjoy this special best of presentation of Living the Call. We don't sing in mass because it's nice to sing. We don't sing because like it's some arbitrary, you know, pleasing to the ear experience. We sing in the mass because that draws us more accurately and fully into the heavenly mystery. And that's something that needs to be said over and over and over again, because music is not a secondary consideration in the mass. What's the real purpose of music, song and chant in God's plan of creation? Are we aware of just how essential this gift is in our spiritual lives? In this week's episode, Paul Rose, creator of Sing the Hours, the global video and audio podcast dedicated to the Divine Office, shares how we can all use the Church's musical tradition to enrich our prayer lives and deepen our relationship with Christ. Singing in particular is one of the things that um, is a necessary language of the soul. It's necessary. It's, it's one of the core ways that humans relate not just to our world and each other, but also to God. If you have the source and summit, which is the Eucharist, it's our responsibility to use the full riches of the church to create that emotional experience. And the, the liturgy of the hours when chanted does that. It does that. It makes people weep. As Christians, we're called to unite our voices with the church, to connect with God through the universal prayer of music. This is Living the Call. Paul Rose, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Deacon Charlie. It's so great to have you, man. And you know, this is a total cold call, right? Because I mean, I literally found out about you. I've been using, you know, Liturgy of the Hours that you've created, this which we'll talk about. And I just took a flyer and I'm like, I'm going to reach out to Paul, you know, and see if he might be interested in coming on the show. So it's really great to, to meet you for all intents and purposes. I'm happy to be here. And it might have been a cold call, but we're going to make this conversation as warm as possible. Absolutely. Make up for it. No, no question. And there's been a couple of things that have sort of, uh, you know, been obstacles in us getting together, but uh, I'm glad that we're here together now. And I, I guess one thing that I wanted to, and you know, by the way, it's been kind of music filled shows for me lately. I just had... Um, uh, Frank LaRocca, which by the time we get on, uh, this episode comes out, that'll be released as well. Frank LaRocca is the composer in residence for the Benedict Sixteenth Institute up in the Bay oh, Area. Yeah. And um, so, you know, I've had a lot of uh, music on the on the heart and mind, but I do want to initially just come out and let you know, since we haven't had this conversation, that I'm a great admirer of all things musical, but I claim absolutely no no skill or talent in that regard. Um, but, uh, you know, hopefully I can hang in there with you in terms of uh, of your kind of musical background and everything you bring to the table. Love it. Yeah. My my theory of music and this pertains to the liturgy of the hours is that. 2% of people mm. are actually tone deaf and cannot sing. But 98% of people can get up to like at least uh, as my uh, a, a fellow deacon of yours, as um, Deacon Nate Sanders here in Boston in the Diocese of Boston says, he says, I'm confident that I can get 98% of people up to at least an 80% proficiency in singing. And I totally agree. And, and that's why the... Liturgy of the Hours is something that is sure. really accessible to be sung for most people. But there is 2% of people that really just <laughs> really just don't got it. Yeah, no, I, I hadn't heard that stat, but it, 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 it kind of makes sense. I do think that, I mean, it's like anything, right? Most people don't think of voice as an instrument. And of course, you know, it is. And like anything else, if you practice at an instrument, you can refine it. To your point, there's probably just some instruments that are just kind of 
they don't have what it takes from the very beginning, right? So um, may not be able to get there. It also heartens me to know that this is a comment from a deacon um, that is in your life, because I can tell you that one of the things that I enjoy doing the most and what you do has helped me quite a bit is actually chanting. I mean, and the deacon is supposed to, in many, in many cases, not just, you know, famously with the exalted, right, um, in the triduum, mm-hmm. but he's supposed to chant from time to time, chant the gospel, you know, chant intercessions, et cetera. But we don't do that a whole lot. And I, and, and I had zero formation going through the diaconate program in chant or in yeah. music. So yeah. do, do you work with deacons? Where have you come across? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there's a lot of deacons who who listen to the podcast. Yeah, um, and I have a lot of dear friends who are in the diaconate. And I mean, yeah, it's so broader context. We we live in a non singing culture, and we we live in a culture that, like we do so many things, we we commercialize music and music as a as a lived daily experience of people is something that our, our culture is completely anemic in. We, we have almost no, I mean, you have take me out to the ball game. That's a happy birthday, a, a remnant, happy birthday. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. But this lived daily experience of song is something that we've strayed very, very far from in modern Western culture. And it's a, it's a great tragedy because music is, is one of the things that singing in particular is one of the things that, um, is a necessary language of the soul. It's necessary. Mm. It's, it's one of the core ways that humans relate, not just to our world and each other, but also to God. And when I think about, and I, I, I think often about what, what it means to be soul and body, because as human beings, we aren't a soul within a body. We are a soul and we are a body. And those two things are inextricably and mysteriously joined and inseparable. They're, they're so inseparable that when they do separate, it causes death. For sure. <laughs> the, the separation of the soul from the body is, is death. And therefore, you, you are, you, you cannot exist apart from your body. You also cannot exist apart from your soul. You are both. We are both. And this relates to music where I, I often meditate and and think about the fact that I, I don't, I can't think of something where soul and body are most intimately and tactilely felt than music. Like both of them are expressed in such harmony in music and there's no other, there's no other activity that, that really puts a man's soul and his body in sync. Well, music. I think, I think people, on an intellectual level can understand the idea of being an instrument, right? Like, you know, the famous St. Francis prayer of, you know, make me an instrument, that kind of thing. But in the case of music, you are very much in a real sense, an instrument, right? And I think that that adds a whole dimension to what, um, you know, to how we respond to God, how we respond to each other. Do you have like a particular theology of song? I mean, I think of like the fact that, you know, angelic beings are constantly quoted in scripture as singing, right? The choirs of angels even, right? Some of this kind of terminology. But is there a sense like in your thinking of why God gave us song? Absolutely. It's a huge topic, obviously. Um, So exhibit one, exhibit A, is that 
in in God's revealed revelation and God's truth that he's gifted to us. There's a lot of doctrine, there's a lot of words, but there also is inspired music. So the Psalms as the the most obvious example of this, the Psalms and Canticles, God did not, the, the, the Psalms are not the inspired word of God. They aren't a, a book like other books in the Bible that's the inspired word of God. They're the inspired music of God. Mm. They're the inspired music of God. And to recite a Psalm, to read a Psalm, actually removes the most significant spiritual dimension from that. The, the Psalms are not primarily like, and, and I can't use the word primarily because there's an inexplicable mystery there where you can't, I, I can't say that the music is the integral part or the word is, it's, it's all of it. But I do know for certain that when you remove the music from the Psalm, if you don't chant the Psalms, you will not experience the spirit in, in its fullness. You will mm. not. Mm. And the, even the church fathers like St. Uh, Athanasius in the fourth century in his letter to Marcellinus, he wrestles with this concept. And he, he also comes to the conclusion that the, the Psalms are not experienced in their fullness as bearing yeah. the Holy Spirit unless they're musical. And uh, there, there is in the Catholic church, there is a, and in Christianity, there is a theology of music and it's very, it's, it's one of the most obvious ways that we can wrestle with even the theology of the body. Like, like I said, music is ground zero for where, where the soul and the body are most, most exquisitely expressed yeah. together. Like you, you can't have a human being singing and not see the soul manifest. You also obviously can't have a human being singing and not see the body manifest. So therefore it forms the, the greatest type of prayer. Like Augustine says, he's, he's quoted often. He who sings prays twice, right? Prays twice. Yeah. And, um, King, King David, when, uh, when King Saul was disturbed of spirit and was chucking spears across the room, right. At, at King David, um, or even at his own son, right. As, uh, when, when he lost his temper at, uh, Jonathan, but King David, would would dispel the spirit of malaise through the music, right? Through through his music, he would dispel the spirit of malaise. And certain saints have talked about how chant can uh, ex- exercise demons from places, like demons flee from chant. There's sure. there's an ordering of spirit that occurs when we when we sing scripture. And there's there's a couple other that's ground zero, right? The Psalms. But building on that, you have the reality that in the mass we are participating in the heavenly wedding feast, right? And there are parts of the mass. Some, some theologians argue the entire mass where you also do not get the, the fullness of the spirit unless it is sung. And why is that? It's because in the heavenly wedding feast in the book of revelation, and also in, in old Testament prophecies, we know that the faithful throngs in heaven are singing. Yeah. So if we are participating, Mm -hmm. if we are participating in the mass and we're just doing like a rectotona mass or a spoken mass, like St. Athanasius to quote him, he says, it is not for ornamentation 
that the souls are sung, that, that that the psalms are sung. It is for the soul's own benefit mm-hmm. that we sing the psalm. We we don't sing in mass because it's nice to sing. We don't sing because like it's some arbitrary you know, pleasing to the ear experience. We sing in the mass because that draws us more accurately and fully into the heavenly mystery. And that's something that needs to be said over and over and over again, because music is not a secondary consideration in the mass. It's certainly not a secondary consideration of the Psalms. I, I, my, my soul weeps within me when I attend a mass where they just read, read out the Psalm as if it's another, you know, Another right. thing to lecture, an, another thing to read through, and everyone says it over and over. And it's there's there's that funny concept where when you're in a mass and they're saying the responsory, like let's say they're, the responsory is like, my my soul. It's ironically sometimes the responsory is something like my soul will make music to the Lord, and then they're they're not even singing it. And there's that funny experience that we've all had where you're trying to remember what the responsory was two seconds before. And you're like, my soul will blah, blah, blah. And you can't even remember it because it's just spoken. And it, it literally bounces off of your, of your course. eardrums. But when it's sung, especially in chant, it doesn't bounce off your eardrums. It, it goes right into the bowels, not just of your limbic system. And there's studies that show that music enters the brain totally different totally different mechanism than speech music goes right to the middle brain which is why music is good for therapy singing is good for therapy it, it can heal trauma because it bypasses your 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 information cortex of the brain it goes right to the limbic system right to the very gut of of the human body oh, and in yeah. the same way in in that place it enters into the bowels of the human spirit so when you just read a psalm or when you just say holy 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 and you're just reciting it in the mass you are actually you're actually taking all of the the reality and the force away from the mystery and and you're concealing things that should obviously be accessible and lived and revealed and so the the theology of music is that we're going to be doing it for 99.9999999999 ad infinitum percent of our existence because as you said we're singing in the heavenly wedding feast and so when we don't humble ourselves to learn chant and to learn song and to prioritize it in liturgy and even in culture abroad like it i mean my 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 interest is also to to win back the secular culture for making music not something that we commercialize and do oh that guy's really good at singing but something that that we experience as a daily as a daily bread because man cannot live on <laughs> on bread alone but on every word and song that comes from the Savior's mouth is a little from the uh, mouth of God. Amen. That's it. What I what I what I get, you know, we, we just um, just uh, yesterday on Sunday we're recording the show on Monday, but um, just yesterday the scriptures, if you recall, were all related on some level in this principle of completeness, this pr- a principle of fulfillment, right? So like, mm-hmm. lay, you know, make the mountains low, make the valleys high, make the path straight, not curvy. It was all this sense of bring to fulfillment. And when I think about music and basically what you just shared, which I don't know if I've thought about in this way before, but it is a way of kind of completing our dialogue with God, right? It kind of approaches, well, I'll put it to you this way. We know the Trinity is, is, a, uh, is a communion of persons, right? That God himself is in his very nature, in his essence, a communion of persons and a relationship of persons. And my guess is that these people, these persons, God, you know, God, Son, Holy Spirit, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, 
when they communicate, they're much more apt to communicate in something like song than they are in something like words. So to me, it feels like it is mm. almost a, a fulfillment of that dialogue of how we can express, how we can become ourselves most human, most complete, is when we, you know, when we think about or approach our relationship with God through song. And the other thing that's kind of cool about what you said, and I see the evidence, um, you know, looking around the world, is that no matter where people are in their spiritual walk, and, you know, people are everywhere and all along, and I want to talk a little bit about yours too, but no matter where they are, people understand the power of, of music, the power of song, the, the kind of way that it can viscerally connect us to something, the way that it can move somebody to, to tears, to joy, to sort of inexpressible happiness. Like you don't have to, you could be an atheist and understand that concept. And so as a method of ministry, as a method of evangelization, right? How critical it is. Yes. 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 Um, my, my sister, when, so now getting into the podcast. So for all the listeners, I sing a podcast, it's called Sing the Hours, where for at minimum morning and evening prayer every day, lauds and vespers, as it's called in the tradition of the church, the Western church, I sing the Liturgy of the Hours, which for those of you who, who don't know, is the official public prayer of the church. It's something that deacons make a vow to participate in at their ordination and priests reaffirm that vow as one of their seven promises. So every priest you've ever met is obligated daily to sing the Liturgy of the Hours. And I say sing because Vatican II, it's right in the, and it's affirmed in all the councils, but Vatican II affirms like is the the universal tradition of the church that whenever possible, whenever possible, the Psalms and the divine office should be sung. And as our, our dear friend Deacon Charlie explained, unfortunately, most deacons don't receive any chant training in their, in their formation. seminary uh, formation to prepare them to fulfill that promise as it's prescribed in the council. And so the podcast exists to help normalize and encourage the singing of the divine office because it's supposed to be sung. We're just, we're, we're, we're trying to live out the, the new evangelization of Vatican II and to, to live that mission of allowing the spirit to really enkindle people's hearts through the singing of it. And when Deacon Charlie a moment ago was talking about how music uniquely can cause an emotional uh, reaction, there, there are two interesting truths that, that follow from that. The first is that in, in the old covenant we have, and Christ affirms it as the summit of the law is to worship God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And if, if you see the brain or the human body at large in a, in a, in a scan, when, when you see the brain in song, you have portions of the brain that are almost never activated by speech that are set on fire by singing. Mm. You have a harmony that happens. And actually there's some medical research that examines the, the the fact that it's impossible. And this is something that, that I've, I've heard therapists say, it's impossible to be depressed, to have a, a clinical state of depression in your brain and to sing at the same time. Singing really? is that, is that potent at, that's cool. At, invigorating your limbic sure. system. Your your middle brain could, could experience trauma, could experience dis, 
dissociation, but singing literally puts you back in your body. So if you want to worship God with your whole strength, with your whole mind, as is prescribed in the law, singing is the, the ground zero for that. It is the, as Deacon Charlie was saying, in terms of establishing a completeness, nothing invigorates the body so completely. It's also a breathing, you know, breathing is involved. Your, your, um, your muscles are involved. Your, your entire body is put into complete harmony with itself and with its soul as is the theological aspect when you're singing. And therefore, if we're going to worship properly in the divine office, we have to sing it. We have to, that's, that's why Vatican II reaffirms that, that, um, command, that we have to whenever possible. Like if you don't have strep throat, if you're not lying in bed and dying, you should sing the divine office. You know, you know, one of the things that I think about when we get to the other side, God willing, um, hopefully directly, but if not through the mercy of purgatory, but once we get to the other side, I have a sense that a lot of what heaven is, is just a recognition of how much God has done in creation to try to get our attention and to orient us toward him. Yeah. And one mm-hmm. thought on what you just said is think about this. He gives us, first of all, Liturgy of the Hours, yes, as you rightly point out, is something that, you know, ordained men make a promise to their bishop to continue to pray. Why? Right. The thought of like, mm-hmm. OK, well, it's some obligation or some duty I have to do or some rule I have to follow. Well, that's that may be true, mm-hmm. but it's like talk about the, the, the bottom of the barrel. Right. If you think about what that's for, it's precisely because of the benefits, to put it in that way, of this kind of practice, what that means for your mind, body and soul together. And the fact that it can actually keep you spiritually healthy and spiritually attuned. When you imagine that the Liturgy of the Hours is not just something for the clergy, but something for the whole church. Yes. Then you think of like, man, what a great evidence of God's like amazing plan and mercy towards that that he gives us this like incredible tool that we can use as a way to kind of keep, you know, spiritually fit in a way throughout our earthly lives. Yes. And and when I talk to my mom on the phone and she's listened every day for the entire the entire existence of this podcast, she and I, she and I are always just quoting bits of psalm to each other. It's like part of our lived experience now. It's it's become a part of our 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 walk in our in our Christian experience together because once you assign the psalm to tunes, you just like they they become part of you like the the scripture just your your cup runneth over literally it splashes around out of your temple and and you can't help but just be assigning psalms to every situation and one one that we always quote to each other because it's just it's it's repeated a lot in the liturgy of the hours oh god you are my god for you i long for you my soul is thirsting my body pines for you like a dry, weary land without water. And, you know, I, I, I could go on and recite that mm-hmm. whole song because sure. it's assigned to a tune and then it becomes a part of you. It becomes a part of like, think about the the songs that you heard in middle school. There are songs that I'll never forget from middle school, dumb songs from pop culture, you know, songs from whoever. And they're just, they're, they're ingrained in the deepest bowels sure. of my brain. And there are studies of people who have Alzheimer's who are like, who've forgotten everything. Who've, who've forgotten literally everything, and then you play a song and from boom, when they were ten back. years old, and immediately they're 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 singing every word because music is ground zero. It's it's where your mind's memory and the soul's memory, and the soul's memory is something that is completely inextricable. We don't understand yeah. how it works, but music gets gets stuck not just to your brain but to your soul. So it's important, yeah, that that we that we allow the scripture to be written on our hearts through the music as well. And I think that deacons and 
and uh, priests, you you say, why are they? Why do they make a promise to to do this? Well, I think one of the reasons is is because we rewrite our soul's DNA as we become the the music of revealed mm. revelation. Christ is the Word of God, right? Christ mm-hmm. is the Word of God, and when we spend so much time living hour by hour, sanctifying our hours and singing this word, then we become that word. It becomes written on our soul and and the icon that we are of Jesus Christ, the image becomes clearer and clearer as we commit ourselves to that daily practice of living the Psalter. And Christ himself, the the Psalter is where, and 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 we're talking about how music is the completeness of this, the Psalter, meaning the, the Psalms, that's ground zero for where Christ fulfilled prophecy about himself. Like his dying words on the cross are quoting the Psalm. Oh God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right. Yeah. And Christ's entire ministry. My, my sense is that when Christ went out into the desert to pray alone frequently with God in the wilderness, I, I would imagine he was, he was singing Psalms to God. He's got to it. I mean, and, and, and and that's an interesting, you know, nugget about Psalm 22, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, that is him like a good, you know, Jewish boy would do a Jewish man would be to know the Psalter backwards and forwards. And the Psalter, you know, the, 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 the actual practice of praying the Psalter predates even the incarnation, right? About like actually people praying and singing, chanting, um, you know, these prayers, these songs of David, um, as a way to, you know, to aid in their proximity to God. It's, it's super, super interesting. The other thing that's really interesting about, about you, well, I'm finding out what's interesting about you, but one thing that I came into this podcast with is the, is the, your sense of entrepreneurship, because at least as I understand the story, right, the origin story of your podcast and and your video uh, podcast, your video work on YouTube, because it is both, right? You have a podcast that's daily. You also have a video ch- uh, YouTube channel that's also updated daily with beautiful graphics. And it's, it's all really, really well done, really well produced. The genesis of that is that you looked around once you started to get into this and you're like, where do I find this? And there wasn't anything there. I can 100% affirm this so many times. In my, because I travel a lot for my work and whatever, and deacons, you know, some of them are full time, but other ones still live in the world. And so for me, going and traveling different places and, you know, you have to lug your liturgy, the hour set or books with you. Sometimes you want to travel light. And so you look like, where are the easy ways that I can have this in a very engaging way? And you've got some apps that can deliver it to you, but it's in this very kind of artificial intelligence, you know, robot voices that are singing, not even real. And I can understand why, because otherwise you need a person like you to do it every day, which I'm sure is, you know, is, is, is a cross that you bear in some respects. But, you know, there really isn't, isn't anything out there. In my own life, I would look around and search and I would find some very well-meaning priests and some deacons who like try to create the YouTube channel for Liturgy of the Hours, but God love them. It was really low quality. And what you've done, at least to, to the extent that I'm, under, I'm aware of it, is you've actually done this daily ministry, which is what it is. And you've taken it to a level of quality that I have never seen before. And I think is part of what at least aids in the beauty and the majesty of this kind of daily prayer. And I think that origin story is actually really, really cool. I, yeah, that's, that's well said. I, I could not believe last November when I decided, uh, in fact, December 6th, today is the anniversary of the first video that we posted on the podcast. So cheers. It's been one See year Nicholas. now. Nicholas. Absolutely. Yeah, that's it. That's it. So I'm happy to be here on my 
on my one year anniversary. But yeah, I, I mean, it it is it was unbelievable to me in December. I thought because my priest, uh, my parish priest was and I were discussing about how priests make this promise. And that means that there are hundreds of thousands of priests, millions of brothers and other people who do this seven times a day. Right now, there are probably several million people in the world who are committed to, you know, who are like Dwayne The Rock Johnson and work out for that equivalent amount every day, right? And how many of those people post tons of videos, workout tutorials, like there's so much content out there, right? It's like you you can take your pick of 10,000 different gurus who are showing you the best way to work out. I honestly thought... And I'm a convert, so I, I I maybe have rose-colored glasses about the church. But I honestly thought that I would be able to find hundreds of priests being like, this is the best way to chant. And like, follow me on my chant. Because, I mean, like, if they're doing it so much, which I hope they are, if they're <laughs> actually faithful and fulfilling their promise, why aren't there hundreds of priest gurus showing us the best way to chant? If sure. it's that much of a lived experience, it, it's unbelievable to me. And I think that we are only going to, we, we, we will be... You know, I I often think to myself, how am I going to really be a saint in heaven? Like what's unbelievable, what what challenges my faith about heaven and the existence of heaven is me. How am I going to like, and therefore that's why I'm so excited that purgatory exists. I was, I was relieved when I became Catholic and was like, thank God for for purgatory. Because (laughs) as an evangelical, I couldn't understand how, how heaven is possible. How am I in my sinful state who has a sinful thought every five minutes how am I going to be in a place that since childhood people have told me, oh, by the way, everyone is literally perfect there. Mm. There's not even going to be like, <laughs> like yeah. how on earth are, am I going to, how can I envision a reality in a century, last century where we had a world war where people baptized people in Germany because Germany was a Christian country. It has been for like 800 years. Baptized people in Germany murdered millions of baptized people in, you know, in, in the United States, murdered millions. Like, how can I envision a place where you have billions of people all in harmony, without sin, without a really rigorous purgatory. It can't exist. And we are only going to have justice and peace on earth insofar as we behave as we're going to behave in heaven, right? Hmm. And so what do we do in heaven? We sing. So how can we expect? And here's another, this this really got me. You ready for this? So we have all these priests. We have crisis in the priesthood. We have crisis in the clergy. We have crisis amongst the faithful. I mean, how many how many um, Catholics polled recently? You know, um, how many Catholics couples contracept, which is has been condemned in every century of Christianity. That's what yeah. we don't do as Christians. And they're like, ah, no, I, I, I can I can choose this doctrine and choose. We have a crisis at at every 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 portion of Christian culture is in crisis, but. Then, then you have this new beautiful thing. John Paul II is like, oh, by the way, universal call to sainthood. Everyone's called to be a saint. Let's all be saints. And now young people are like, dude, I can be a saint. And there's like mm. Pierre Giorgio Fersati. That's an awesome message. And let's let's be saints. Yes, let's let's act here on earth how we're going to act in heaven. Let's be more just. Let's let's be saints. But here's mm. the kicker. Are you ready for this? Name one of your favorite saints, uh, Deacon Charlie. Saint, saint Jose Maria Escriva. Saint Jose Maria Escriva was one of those people that took a vow to do the liturgy of the hours. He did the divine office every day. And he's one of my favorite saints too. I was received in the church through Opus Dei. Love St. Jose Maria. And when mm-hmm. I meditate on him, what would go without saying in his era, and now we're like, we never even think about that. He 
saying the liturgy of the office. I mean, the, the liturgy of the hour is like seven times a day. Any saint did. Any saint you think of chanted the divine office. If you like St. Therese, she chanted the divine office seven times a day. You like uh, St. John of the Cross, he chanted the divine office seven times a day. The only thing they, they, they gave him was a psalter when he was imprisoned by his own brothers for nine months. Like these people, if you want to be a saint, sing like the saints, not just in heaven. Don't think, oh, in heaven, I'm going to sing and it's going to be great. The saints sung on earth. Every brother saint, you know, every, every sister saint, you know, every priest saint, you know, and most of the lay saints, you know, sang the Liturgy of the Hours. My, my, like my educated guess about what percentage of the saints who are canonized sang the Liturgy of the Hours is probably like 97%. It's got to be up there. For sure. And if they have a monastic background, forget it. It's a hundred percent. It's hundred percent. Exactly. Yeah. Which is, which is already like 80% of saints. So like, if you want to be a saint, like, like John Paul II says, ground zero is to start chanting, not reciting. Cause that's not what, it's not what people have done in Christian history is to start chanting the Psalms. And that's why my podcast exists. Cause I looked around and I, I thought, oh, I'm going to get so many priest gurus telling me the best way to sing this. Cause I had no idea what I was doing. I just knew I had to sing it. Cause singing is part mm. of like my lived experience as a person. It has nothing to do with me. Like I was never into liturgical music. I never had, I never gave two thoughts to liturgical music before this process, except for like, duh, it's part of our lived experience. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I just believe, I have always believed that music will save the world, but singing music, like ordinary people, not music will save the world, a pop star on stage with 7 million people worshiping him. Like, oh, it's so great. His music is going to, it really, you know, makes me feel good. Or it's, it, it, it's a balm. It's a, you know, it's yeah. therapeutic. That's not how it's going to save the world. Music saves the world because music brings the heavenly dimension to earth. There's a million types of prayer out there, right? The rosary is great. The divine office, I mean, the divine mercy chaplet's great. You know, speaking spontaneously to great is, is great. All this offers incense to God. Are, are you with me? I'm with and you. it's, it's heaven, heaven going up to earth. I mean, I mean, uh, earth going up to heaven, but mm -hmm. the only types of prayer we have where heaven becomes present on earth is the mass and the liturgy of the hours. Mm. That is where the heavenly dimension comes down to earth. And that's so, so much of this awesome. too is also, it's, yeah, it's huge. So much of this is also, um, the general lack of awareness that most Catholics, uh, and I'm interested in your perspective as a convert, that most Catholics have about the church herself, right? The, not just the teachings and doctrine, which, you know, to quote St. Augustine is like something that a little kid can play in and wait in like a little pool, but mm -hmm. also you can't possibly plumb all the depths of no matter who you are, mm -hmm. but also the kind of patrimony around the things that are involved in the faith, music, singing, et cetera. So uh, an easy way to kind of see this, this divide is if you ever have a Roman Rite um, Catholic go and visit a Eastern Rite Catholic pair, uh, church, mm -hmm. right? So Chaldean or the Byzantines or the Maronites or whatever it may be. And those divine liturgies, for the most part, are very are like chanted through and through and not just by the, by the uh, presider were by the deacon, who also is super active in the Byzantine liturgy, but also by the congregation themselves. It's like chanting is unavoidable, but we're very like oftentimes kind of parochial. And that's, that's actually a, a religious word, but in this context, a negative one, right? Very parochial in the way that we kind of view the church and the great gifts that she has. If you grow up as an Eastern Catholic, it's impossible to not understand at some level what you just described. It's very easy to grow up as a Roman Rite Catholic or Latin Rite Catholic and kind of go like, well, this is, you know, holy, 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 Lord. Like, that's just how we do it. Like, there's no, do you see what I'm saying? Like, there's not, there's a lack of awareness of this treasure of stuff yes. that's around us as part of being Catholics writ broad. Yes. And therefore there's a lack of understanding of 
what it means to be human in the West. There's been a whole disembodiment and and commercialization. Like when when we talk about, it's been like a forty year project of people like we need to fight against the the um, objectifying of like women, the human person, et cetera, et cetera. Music is again. I keep using the phrase. It's ground zero of that. It is. Yeah. It is because music is. It's something that we have surrendered as part of our lived experience as human creatures and therefore we don't understand ourselves if mm. if you like talking about the eastern right and i've been to a lot of eastern right services i love the eastern right when when we first converted we went to a, a byzantine right church all the time and you're mm -hmm. absolutely right everybody is singing full voice and i still remember those tunes i haven't been to that church since i was like 17 it's been like 10 years but i could recite to you front and back of the major movements of the Byzantine right, just from, from going there for, you know, a couple dozen times. Like mm -hmm. there's, there's, there's one thing that they do for like 10 minutes where they go and it's in between the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist. So it's after the, the homily and they're going to, they're going to go and uh, start preparing to consecrate communion. And they sing this long, slow, it goes, let us who mystically represent the cherubim and sing the thrice holy hymn. And it's almost like they get slower and slower as mm. they do. And they repeat that over again. And sing the thrice holy hymn. To the uncreated Trinity. And it goes on and on. And by the end of it, you're you're both half asleep and half in reverie and half like like literally feeling like enshrouded by the Trinity. And every pious person in that room, even those who are tone deaf, everyone is singing it. And it's like it's amazing. It's amazing. And what, a, and, what a, and what a way to soften the spiritual earth for the consecration of the Eucharist. I mean, like, unbelievable. Oh, I love, no. Dude, that's a great deacon. Wow. Soften the spiritual earth. Ooh, that's some bars right there. That's awesome. You can, you can use that. I'll uh, put the little R next to it at the top, get some royalties. But no, the, I, right. I, I, I agree with you 100%. Did, what role did music or what role did Catholic music have in your conversion, if at all? That's a great question. That's a great question. Well, most of the beauty that I got in the evangelical tradition was beauty that was Catholic in origin. I mean, in terms of music that Christian music, like 98% of it has a Catholic or, or Orthodox history to it. Um, I recently, for the podcast, I, I've been recording Vinny Vinny Emmanuel. It's a great example. Mm -hmm. Dude, that, that piece is one of the greatest, of course, Advent Christmas pieces that has ever been written. And I love, and and you mentioned how most Catholics, I, I, mean, I didn't know where it came from growing up. I just thought, oh, it's, you know, it's one of the classics. But what does that mean? It's one of the classics. Well, first of all, the name that all the listeners here have to go look up, John Mason Neal. I believe he was an Anglican priest in the 19th century. That dude is a hero. So many mm. of the hymns that we take for granted were translated from ancient Latin texts by John Mason Neal. That guy is just... I, I run into him all the time. And, and if you read the descriptions on my podcast, you'll see his name a lot because he's the best. And he reverently adapts a bunch of ancient Latin treasures, hymns, into English beautifully with the same metrical scheme. Which is hard to do, for sure. It is. And we, mm -hmm. we do that a lot on the podcast. My, my dad is 
translated a lot of hymns for us because there's there's a lot of hymns that don't have good English translations. So we actually is, do is translation it, work for the podcast too. Is that where you get your Latin from? Do you study Latin? I studied Latin for like 10 years when I was a kid. Yeah, your pronunciation is right? really, really good. Thank you. That, that's yeah. also the Italian background too. We, we are For at. sure. Yeah. Yeah, but I can tell where you put your accents on certain things. I'm like, oh, he actually knows Latin, which is different than people can sing Latin. Anybody can sing it. But like you actually knowing the word behind it is, you know, a different thing. And also part of, uh, again, that sort of fullness. But yeah, that's that's cool. So so like you, when you were converting, or, or I guess what was the driver for you? Like, was it a kind of a slow thing or was there a moment of inflection for you in your evangelical? Yeah, so phase? it was a slow thing for my dad. My dad, um, I hope he doesn't mind me sharing. Of course he doesn't. My dad was kind of a closet Catholic traditionalist for decades. <laughs> so it was very slow for him. Very, very slow. Um, he actually was a week out from being received into the Orthodox Church many, many years ago. Mm, interesting. And a week before his confirmation into the Orthodox Church, his evangelical church asked him to be a elder. So he saw that as a sign from God to like, wait. Stay so waited, And then, mm. you know, four years later, he became Catholic. So I think it was a good, I mean, I, I love the Orthodox Church. I love Eastern Christianity. Sure. I've always been a huge, huge fan. And we'll, I mean, you, you can't not be there in apostolic church. But I think I, I say, thankfully, he waited and ended up becoming Catholic because this is the Western world. I mean, like if, if our family had, if he had become Orthodox, um, we would have driven, you know, an hour and a half every Sunday to go to a small, small church where there's you know, a bunch of U Ukrainians and lovely people. Um, it just would not have been, wouldn't have been right. You know, we're, we're here. I mean, I, gr I grew up in California. I grew up in Northern California and there's a Catholic church on every street corner. Um, there's a strong Spanish heritage, um, Mexican heritage. It's, it's part of the DNA of mm -hmm. California and, and of the, of Western culture. I grew up in San Jose for crying out loud. So um, Percent, percentage of people who live in San Jose that know that that's St. Joseph or that <laughs> oh, it's even, no. or that it's even a person. What, what do you think? Is oh, that single Lord digits? Lord of mercy on us all. Lord of mercy on us all. I hope. I mean, yeah, you're, you're, that's a good point, but yeah. So it's, it was the right thing. Um, but what, what brought my dad to the precipice and what brought all of us into the church, I would say was in, it was a lot of things, but in large part, it was the ineffectiveness of evangelical Christianity at really tackling mm. important moral issues in particular for my dad and for my older sister, Lila. So my, my sister, Lila Rose is, is kind of a well-known figure. She sure, I've met your action. sister before. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, so I met her actually uh, last, well, right, maybe right before COVID um, when she moved to LA. Yeah. Yeah. She, mm -hmm. she, she now moved back to Northern California, but um, yeah, she was living in LA for a couple of years. Um, so Lila was, was received into the church through Opus Dei, but, um, it wasn't just the, the spiritual aspect. It was also the fact that the evangelical, um, community has a hard time really laying down the law with a lot of these social issues. Like for example, um, abortion as, as being one of the chief ones, our church, um, was having difficulty because it, it's, it's funny that like Catholic church, um, Catholic priests, often will not, and deacons will, will 
sugarcoat their message. Um, but w- w- when I hear that, it's like, there's no reason to do that. Like in in, in, in evangelical pastor, if they say, say something that's unpopular, they're, they're going to lose their job because their, their church is entirely based on what sort of tithing their, their income is based on what sort of tithing is happening in sure. the pew. There, there's a direct connection. There, there, it's, it's almost democracy because there's and in many so cases many based options. on them too. specifically tied to them. You know, if they decide to leave or move or change teaching or whatever, they could lose their whole flock. Exactly. Exactly. And so that, that was the concern. It's like, how do I make the, put the potentially, you know, 12 post-abortive women in my audience happy while still, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, but, but even if a Catholic priest has nobody in their pews, like take many of the great saints, you have St. John Chrysostom or Chrysostom as he's known, Athanasius. These priests were again and again, they were banished. They were exiled mm-hmm. from their own mm-hmm. churches, from their own diocese, and that's a that's a healthy sign. If um, if your message is so unpopular because it's really against the flow of the wisdom of the world, that your that your parishioners can't stand you, <laughs> like so many of the saints. That's 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 the road they walked. Even John of the Cross, um, who we sure. mentioned, his, his feast is coming up in a couple of days. Like. That dude was so unpopular amongst his brothers that they locked him in a cell for like nine months. Like these these saints who were shepherds of the flock weren't necessarily popular at the time. Like of course. posthumously, it's like, oh yeah, that guy was great. He's amazing. But yeah. Like Christ himself was was ran over a cliff by his own people in Nazareth who were like, Who who are you? You're you're like the carpenter's son. Who are you to be? So when a priest is doing his job, it's not necessarily popular, but he has nothing to lose. Like mm. he he's he's not going to like be in danger of not being able to feed himself or his family or whoever. Like there is nothing to lose, and so that's one reason why why we became Catholic is because in a rightly ordered Catholic society, the people have to conform for their own good and for their own happiness. They have to conform to the revealed truth of the Catholic faith. In every other church that exists, they, it eventually crumbles because either over 100 years, 200 years, churches eventually have to conform to the people. If there isn't a rock, right, the rock that the church is built on, the, the petron rock of yeah. of truth and of, of the apostolic doctrine. So, Well, and that's the principle of Catholicism that's at the foundation, right, which is this kind of both and reality, right? Second Vatican Council puts it as... Um, you know, uh, the sign of the times by the light of the gospel, right? So it's a question Mm. of to the extent that you have to engage. It's kind of the definition of pastoral, right? The definition of pastoral, which is oftentimes very misunderstood or misused even in some cases, is the idea that you meet someone where they are, but you show them the way, right? If you set the bias too much in either of those, right? Like, hey, we're going to tell you the things and all the ways that you're screwing up. Well, then a person, an individual, by the way, this isn't about what you preach. You should always preach that, like St. Paul said, the truth and love. But when you engage with people one-on-one, you have to meet them where they are because we're all on a walk of faith. And even St. Paul says to not, you know, to not, to be patient with people's scrupulous, you know, scrupulosity in terms of their faith walk, because not everybody's where you're at, right? It's like the, the milk comes before the meat and we get that. But I think that this idea of, of, you know, saying the truth, but saying it in love, you know, is the definition of kind of being pastoral and to meet somebody where they are, but don't forget about just like meeting them where they are. You know, I'll, I, I, I've given this example before, but it's kind of like, I think of the desert, you know, 
by the way, is another great place to make music. But the desert is, if you met somebody where they are in the desert, you know, you can meet them where they are and just say, hey, how you doing? Here's a glass of water. And then like, see ya. You know, they're still stuck in the <laughs> desert. They're still going to be exposed, right? Or, you know, the other end of the spectrum, you could come in and badger them and say, how the heck did you get here? Are you stupid? Don't you know the desert's dangerous? Like everybody knows not to be in the desert. So neither of those approaches work. But what does is, hey, you know, hi, here's some water. By the way, if you walk a mile that way, there's a little oasis. And in fact, I'll walk with you. Like that's being pastoral. It's not saying the desert is good or the desert doesn't exist or some, somehow watering down the teaching of what, what the thing is, mm-hmm. but it's also about accompanying people. And I think, you know, because maybe particularly because we're living in such a polarized moment right now in our country, that it's like, we feel that we kind of have to pick either or. And the thing about Catholicism is it's really both. And that's the thing. That's the, yeah. the, the, the completeness of it. Yeah. Totally. I totally agree. And it's the same, bringing it back to music. It's both and. Like, I was talking to someone last night who said, you know, I, I, I was doubling up on weekends. I admit it. She said I was going to Catholic mass and then I was going to an evangelical service because I just felt like it sunk, it it reached my heart more. and, And I needed to be fed, not just in my in my body and in my soul and in my mind, but also in my body, I need to be fed emotionally, which is totally reasonable, Mm. totally reasonable. And it's, it's both. And like you can, the, the problem is that in growing up evangelical, this is musically how it, how it relates. What I remember is the source and summit of worship in evangelical Christianity, the, the modern music movement, the source and summit is that emotional experience of God through music, which is not false. There's nothing wrong with it at all. The problem is that on its own, it's meaningless. If you have the source and summit, which is the Eucharist, right? The person of Christ engaging with him. You're supposed to have every subsequent human experience that comes from that. Jesus should make you cry. He should tug at your heartstrings. Once you, once you have the, the right ordering of a sacramental reality, right, an experience of Christ sacramentally in the Eucharist, it, it's our responsibility to use the full riches of the church to create that emotional experience. And the, the liturgy of the hours when chanted does that. It does that. Mm. It makes people weep. I have received so many messages from people around the world, like evangelicals even. Like I, I went to a, um, I went to a, um, a pro-life rally in Santa Monica a few months ago. And there was an hour of praise and worship music with, you know, guitar solos and shredding and lots of really, really rousing music, really excellently performed music um, in the, in the Christian rock variety. And before that happened though, we, I, I, I did one Psalm. I did um, the evening prayer from that day. I forget which Psalm it was. It was, oh, it was the, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made with Psalm 139. So I chanted Psalm 139 on stage very simply in Gregorian tone eight, you know, and, um, afterwards this evangelical couple came up to me, several evangelicals came up to me, but in particular, I'll never forget it. This evangelical couple came up to me and said, you know, um, all the worship was really great that night, but I, I didn't feel the spirit Hmm. so present in my heart, so moving to me 
as when you did that, whatever you did, like they, they mm. never heard chanting before. And, um, it was funny. This, this one friend of mine said, uh, um, that one of the people in the audience had come up to him and said, did you hear that, that Jewish rabbi come up and sing that psalm it was so awesome they had no idea like these like right. evangelicals have no idea what's going on i mean sure. most catholics have no idea what's going on when when you chant a psalm most catholics are like what the heck is that but it's beautiful and it causes an emotional reaction because the emotional reaction is tried <clears throat> and true like modern evangelical music modern like rock and roll it's not just evangelical catholics do it too modern music is a new experiment right doing it in that context i mean charles wells charles wesley's hymns were not like that, you know, like John Mason Neal's like most evangelical Christians in the last 500 years, their hymns are not like they, they might as well sound like Catholic hymns, you know, in, in, in comparison, but, um, the, the tried and true way to make saints, right. For, for the, the, the 1500 year old tradition of music is this chanting. And that's only when it was written down for all we know. So some, some uh, music historians think that the the Gregorian chanting that we use like da 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 that's tone eight maybe it's familiar to you like my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for He has looked with favor on His lowly servant some people think that that tune might be thousands of years old that that might come from ancient Judaism itself because we don't know for certain since it wasn't music notation was invented for the purpose of chant for crying out loud. Um, and what does that mean? It means that when we, when we sing in those tones, they might go all the way back to King David for crying out loud. They might've been given to King David by God himself wow. for all we know. They're, sure. they're at the very least, they're thousands of years old. They're at least 1500 years old. And, and these, these, these Gregorian tunes, when we apply them to the Psalms, they've made saints. Yeah. I, I have a friend, Giorgio, who's awesome. He has a, a a new project I want to stump for you guys. It's called, um, it's a podcast. It's uh, Floriani and it's a chant podcast. You can look it up on Spotify. It's called like, uh, like Learn Chant. It's by Floriani Music. And we'll add awesome. it in the show notes for this episode. Yeah. So um, he, he one time I was talking to him on the phone. He said, my friends and I were watching fireworks and they were exploding in the sky. And we thought, this might be what the end times feel like, you know, all these like explosions and stuff. And they all just spontaneously started singing the Salve Regina. And, and in mm. that moment, I, I think he said people were weeping. There was just something about it. And he said, the, the type of music I'm interested in making and singing and being a part of is the kind of music that people would be martyred to. Mm. People would, would happily be burned alive. Like if, if you were getting on the pyre as a Christian, what would you sing? Would you, th would, would you sing? And no offense, I'm not calling out this particular song. It's, it's a great song, but we are one body in all the earth. One breath of blessing, which we bless. Would we sing that? Or, or would you want to approach the parapet singing? Regina Celi Letare Alleluia. Quia quemeruisti portare. Alleluia. Right? Like, I want to get murdered say B, to that song. Paul. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, the, yeah. the, the, the other thing is, is that, you know, we have a sense in our modern way of thinking that, um, you know, complexity, maybe I'm using this term incorrectly from a musical standpoint, but things that are, you know, um, things that are overly uh, wrought, let's just say, or more complex or, or, you know, have more to them are necessarily or in some ways better. And, you know, that, ta- that in, in many cases flies in the face of what we know about God's revealed nature, that even yeah. though he is the most magnificent, there can't be the source of magnificence. He is magnificence itself, justice itself, truth itself, love itself, yeah, all of those things. Nevertheless, he is eminently simple. He's, Preach. he's right? So that's, that's the other thing is, and music that approaches that, I think, is more naturally connected with who he is and therefore has this kind of, kind of effect. I asked um, uh, Frank LaRocca, who I mentioned earlier on the podcast, I asked him, because we're about to do this now with you, because I know we're at the top of our time together, but I asked him in one of my closing questions, what kind of, what he would be hearing on his way to heaven if he were fortunate enough to get there? Because mm. I imagine, you know, Every musician composer has thought about this kind of thing. And I, I, I'm not going to reveal what he said because it's on the mm-hmm. podcast. It'll come out next week. Mm, but he had, thought, he had thought gobs about this. And I can tell you it was more along the lines of what you just said than anything that may have been this. Because he's got an incredible repertoire of beautiful classical music, but a lot of it very experimental, right? That's actually his background, like super complex and like, yeah, yeah. you know, these kind of different things. But it was this very, very simple, beautiful, lovely, <clears throat> you know, uh, piece that he imagined he would be hearing on his way to his great reward. And and God I think for that reason. God is in the still small voice, right? God is in the still small Absolutely. voice. Absolutely. Sorry Isaiah, to interrupt, and that keep one, going. And that yeah. one no, 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 no. That, 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 was, basically, that was basically the thought. Um, well, look, I, I, I know we've got to get you on your way because you've got a lot of things to do. Um, before we get to our final segment here, Wait What? I did want, you know, we talked a lot about your, the, the ministry. And I don't know if you view it as a, ministry apostolate. I do as a consumer of it, I can tell you that. Um, but if, if you want to share with folks, you know, info about what you're doing now, but also if you have thoughts or plans for what might come next, yeah. let's do that now. And we will, we'll add this information all in the show notes as well. Um, but I want to just give you a, a chance to, to, to chat to the folks about that. Yeah. So, hmm. We just hit one year. We've been posting daily offices. We've had over 800,000 offices prayed in the last year that I know of, because we're also on 20 plus radio stations in the Northeast. So I have no idea. If, if you want to call your local Catholic radio station, I currently am not charging anything to the radio stations that want to air the content daily. So call them up. We can probably get it on the air. It's, it's slam dunk. It's just like 30 minutes of excellently produced and it is the hours. Yeah. Like, let's, let's go like, get it on the radio, call them up. Um, yeah, my, my goal would be to perhaps incorporate as a nonprofit because it is, it is a ministry. It's a mission. I mean, my, if, if you calculated what my hourly rate has been, there's a lot of, been, there's been a lot of people who in their great generosity have just sent money on account of the, the project, which is, uh, in God's providence. But I mean, my, I'd, I'd at this point be making less than minimum wage for the amount of, and given the amount of skill that it takes, the amount of expertise to do all the audio production, to do all the, the video production. I mean, I'm, it, I'm basically doing this for free and full time. Yeah. 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 So it's been a, it's been a great labor of love. Absolutely. A ministry, absolutely an apostolate. Um, and I, I would love to incorporate it so that we can do more offices like the, uh, 
maybe the office of the readings, maybe even daytime offices, maybe do it around the clock. Like, mm. you, you know, they have perpetual adoration in certain churches. Why don't I have perpetual, like, if I get some trained singers that are committed to doing this, I, I think it could, we, we could continue to grow the platform. But my, my real heart, I want people in their imagination to think how easy it would be. Like, dude, it takes an hour to learn how to chant, literally, for an ordinary person. For a trained singer, it takes 10 minutes. That's what Giorgio said when I originally talked to him. He's like, oh, you want to learn how to do the, the, the psalm tones? I'll teach you in 10 minutes. And he did. Like, literally, it is so easy. The, the psalm tones were designed so that peasants could do it in, like, the 6th century. Like, we have way more musical. The average person, if you played piano as a kid for two weeks, you had more musical training than a peasant in the Middle Ages that psalm tones are designed for. So, please, humble yourself and and learn just learn it it's so easy and once you learn it you, you can't unlearn it it'll start reprogramming your soul like jesus 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 as a little boy chanted the psalms so let's be like jesus and chant the psalms my goal is to get parishes incorporating the liturgy of the hours into their daily life into the into the rhythm of their day after morning mass before morning mass just do it like priests should not have to be walking alone in this it's the public prayer of the church why is it done so privately most people i i've asked dozens hundreds of friends did you know that the average priest does this? No, I've been Catholic all my life. I didn't know priests do this. What is this little book you're holding? Is that a Bible? Catholics ask me. This is a breviary. They've never even seen it before. Like, come on, people. This is, we have an entire treasure that raise the church should be using. Yeah, What's that? for sure. Yeah. They so got to raise their game. Yeah. We got to raise the game. I, I want priests posting their workout videos where they like, oh yeah, this is how I do the, the office. I actually use Psalm, I use tone five on Psalm 139. That's the way I like to do it. Some people do tone seven, but I do tone five. And like, I want competing, like, let's, let's, let's be like, there should be so much content and exposure to this because this is not just how we become saints. It literally is like spiritual exercise. It's like, this is how you get ripped. This is how you get like Dwayne the Rock Johnson. We're That's talking it. Petrus yeah. the Rock Peter, this, this is how you spiritually get. shredded, shredded, yeah, well, and so we need that. Exactly we, right. We need to create a culture that is not just musical, but also that is committed to allowing this to change us and to and to to reform us. Um, back on the 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 way that people were martyred, dude. Af- after my friend said that, I started reading in the stories of martyrs, like the 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 French sisters, the the Discalced Carmelites in the French Revolution, who are now uh, canonized. They. Each they went them. singing to the gallows. Yeah. yeah, they went. They went singing. They went singing mm-hmm. the. I think it was the Salve Regina. They literally were martyred to Salve Regina. And as each sister was, their head was lopped off. They just kept singing, like that. That's their dying breath was chant. And then you have Paul Miki and his companions. They 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 were put on a death march to Nagasaki. That was like five hundred miles or something. And the entire way, the entire way, they chanted the Te Deum without ceasing joyfully wow. chanting the, the two to their death like come on wow. this is like this is how you this is this brings heaven down to earth this is how the martyrs this is this is how they went out dude it's awesome stuff it christ really, was really singing is. a psalm from from his crucifixion as we know like dude as let's, he get, was let's get with it let's Correct. do it so i can I'll, I'll throw you two quick little thoughts here number one i really love first of all i love your salve um, and I love the fact that you end the hours with Mary and him in all cases, which is not necessarily part of the practice of, of those who, even those who very devoutly pray the, the liturgy, yeah. you know, all the time. But I really do love that and that appreciation, um, you know, for our blessed mother in the liturgy of the hour. So I, I do like that. One quick thought for you as you think yeah, about what take, comes take next. Take your time. Take your time. One quick thought for you as you, as you consider what comes next. And this is something that I'm on quite a bit. 
you know, I'm involved in a thousand and one um, Latino related um, apostolates and ministries and that kind of thing. I'm on the board of the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders and Tepeyac and all these different things and um, working with the USCCB on all their efforts in this regard. And, you know, I think about the you want to talk about a, a, a group of people who's not familiar, Catholic folks. 42% of the church in the U.S. is Latino, right? 65% of the, of the church under 18 is Latino. Um, and yet only 4% of our Catholic priesthood is Latino, which is interesting, kind of a time bomb if you think about it. But I can tell you that the Liturgy of the Hours as a chanted, as a prayer A, and as a chanted prayer B is unknown in this community. And something that I think would be really, really interesting for you to think about how this, you know, looks and sounds perhaps in Spanish. Now I know that there's, you could do the liturgy in every language and I get that, but right now and where we are in our time and place, we're in the U S in 2021. And that's a huge, huge, huge part of the American Catholic experience yes. that usually gets kind of the shorter shrift kind of down the road. Um, yes. So that's just a thought, you know, kind of a little bee in the bonnet to, for you to think about. But I can tell you for me, Paul, um, great privilege to have you be on the show. I'm a big fan of what you're doing. Count me, us, my orbit as, you know, big supporters, admirers of your work. We'll be, you know, consistently praying and doing more than just praying, but in support of this. I think it has that snowball chance of becoming something much bigger and really creating an entire ecosystem around this kind of music and sound experience and voice experience that we need as a way to rediscover our faith and also as a way to evangelize and minister to others. So I couldn't be more bullish on what you're doing. Let's do it. And uh, dude, so we, we got to get it in Spanish. We got to get the Latinos involved. I'm not the man for the job because I don't know Spanish because I'm a bad Californian. But we we need to do that. Like, well, so well, so you, like you, you like, do Latin pretty good. So you're on your way. I mean, it wouldn't I appreciate take much. that. Wouldn't like take Tupac, much. to quote Tupac Shakur, he said, "I may not be the one to change the world, but I guarantee you that I will be the brain. I know that, but that I will be the one to spark the brain that will change the world. So I may and, not be the one to do Latino liturgy of the hours, but I guarantee you <laughs> that I can be the one to spark the brain." That will start doing Latino liturgy hours. Let's get it done, dude. How many people, I love that. how many young men are there out there or women who have a great voice and who know Spanish? Like I've been to those Spanish masses. They are all singing along. They have great voices. All they, they need. Are. And, and, and dude, you have a microphone right there. So, you know, grab someone who has a good voice, teach them chant in under an hour and it's off to the races. If, if I can do it by myself, then we can get four, four people to do Italian liturgy hours. We can get four people to do Spanish liturgy hours. But what, what needs to change first is, is we got to set the culture on fire of being exposed to the fruits of this prayer. And then it'll write itself. There'll, there'll be a thousand Latino liturgy of the hour workout channels where people are like, this is how I do it. This, how, like in every language, this is, this is the prayer of the church and we need to get it. We need to get it going. We got to well, get so it going. I'm doing my sounds, part. Let's, let's do it. The, that sounds for, if you're listening to this show, the gauntlet has been thrown. Maybe it's you. So who knows? Who knows? That's right. Well, awesome, Paul. Um, are you ready to play Wait What? I'm so ready. I'm excited. Right. That was actually what I was most excited about. I love little games right, like very, this. Very, very, very good. So now we didn't talk about this, Paul, but I know that you're a classic car guy. So it may interest you to know a little bit about an atypical classic car, the very famous Pope Mobile. 
Even though John Paul II really disliked the term, nevertheless, the name we give to the car that carries around the pontiff stuck in the vernacular, and there's been many car brands represented throughout history of the Popemobile, a history which began in 1929 with Pope Pius XI. Now, there's been Mercedes Popemobiles, Citroens, Jeeps, Toyotas, Fiats, Range Rovers, Kias, and even Isuzus throughout the years. But what, Paul? was the make of the first Popemobile used for a visit of the Holy Father to the United States. Wow. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go out on a little. I'm going to say Cadillac. Oh, you're so close. You're so close. What would be like a Cadillac's watered-down cousin? Um, I don't know if that helps you narrow it yeah, down. Yeah, hold on, hold on. A Cadillac's watered-down, so like a Chevy? A Lincoln Continental. A Lincoln, of course. Lincoln, yeah. yeah. Lincoln, Lincoln, Lincoln Continental. Okay. Not only did this 1964 Lincoln Continental carry Paul VI through New York on his visit, but it also chauffeured astronauts such as Neil Armstrong and Buzz nice. Aldrin. It was this super impressive 21-foot-long limo, and it was the very Oof. first Popemobile in the U.S., a Lincoln Continental. There you go. I love that. All right, Paul, question number two. Which of these, because we also didn't talk about this, but I know that you've got some debate history in your background. So which of these is false about some of the greatest Catholic saint debaters in history? Which of these is false? Okay. Okay. St. John Chrysostom, which you've already mentioned on the show, lived in extreme ascetism and became a hermit, spent two years continually standing. He barely slept and he committed the Bible to memory. Okay. That's A. Or is it B? Is it B? Sorry, Sorry, keep going. Is it B, St. Justin Martyr, after studying various systems of philosophy, chanced upon an old Muslim who engaged him in a dialogue about God and spoke (laughs) of the testimony of prophets. Okay. So there's obviously something highly wrong. Oh, sorry. Keep going. One more. You got to, we're going to pick which one is false. Or or is it C, St. John Henry Newman, during his time as an evangelical Calvinist, held the belief that the Pope was the Antichrist from the book of Revelation. So which of those is False. St. John Chrysostom spent two years standing and didn't sleep. St. Justin Martyr kind of got into the faith after a chance meeting with an old Muslim. Or St. John Henry Newman uh, believed that the Pope was the Antichrist before he converted to Catholicism, which is false. Can I take issue with with two of them, actually? Yeah, please. So number two is definitely wrong because Muslims didn't exist when Justin Martyr was around. He was around in the second century. So you are correct. Yeah. Number three strikes me Mm -hmm. as a little strange because... John Henry Newman, wasn't he an Anglican, not a Calvinist? Well, he John was, Henry? well, he was well, an Anglican. Was he but, Calvinist but in his theology? He was Calvinist in his theology, yeah. So, yes. and this but may have did, been very, very short-lived time of sort of okay. believing that the Pope was the Antichrist. I'm not yes. sure, but, yeah. but nevertheless, that one has some uh, attestation historically. So it sure, is number sure. two. You are correct. You knew that one almost right away. Normally people, you know, you're like champing at the bit to get it at the I wrong one. I love church history. I love it. That's a great Beautiful. question. Well, you're batting 500, Paul. This is the last question, and there's always a time machine question. So here it is. You travel back to the Umbrian region of Italy in the early 6th century, and you get a chance to meet Benedict of Nursia, the father of Western monasticism, who, among many things, established the protocol of the divine office for monastic use. Mm -hmm. Now, knowing what you know now, about the importance of the Liturgy of the Hours, you give him one daring recommendation about his new protocol. What is it? Wow. (laughs) First of all, I want to thank you for having me on the show. And you are, you're a great interviewer. These are awesome questions. 
Like I'm, my my soul is singing. Wow! If I could talk to Saint Benedict, uh, I would say start praying for a guy named Paul Rose now, <laughs> because he's going to need all the help he can get. <laughs> no, That's I would a good say one. I would say. Um, hmm. Hmm. I mean, you can't really tell him how to do his job. He, it's, he, he did such a. I mean, wow. What would you t- What would you tell him to do? Well, I mean, um, he's rolling. He's rolling out this divine office for monastic use, so it's yeah. brand new at the time. So yeah. I don't know. You know. Wow. I would say. I would say immortalize now, a place for the laity participating in the divine office. Mm. And maybe he did that. Maybe I don't know enough about his. Um, his rule, but I, yeah, I would say immortalize now a place for the laity in the divine office, which there nice. is, by the way, for everyone listening, go, go find out what that is. Go participate, but listen to the podcast, sing the hours, sing the hours.org, sing the hours, YouTube, sing the hours, Spotify, sing the hours, whatever you listen to. I'm so, I'm so blessed by this conversation. This has been awesome. awesome. Well, we'll, and we'll include, like I said, all those, the, the links and the show notes to all the different ways people can access sing the hours and, like I said, Paul, what a great privilege. You're welcome back anytime to chat on the show, um, particularly if you've got new great things that are blossoming out of this ministry. But as I said, I uh, pray for the prosperity of the work that you're doing and for everybody to get really knowledgeable on this beautiful, beautiful gift that the church has and how they can incorporate it into their lives like every moment of the day. So that's awesome. Great to have you on the show. Oh, my absolute pl- pleasure. Thank you for your vocation. Thank you for your ministries. Thank you for this podcast. Thank you for your, your clear voice. And I mean, I listened to some excerpts from other episodes. It's awesome work you're doing. I appreciate it. Thanks be to God. And if you're listening to my voice and Paul's voice, that means you should subscribe. You should share the show with somebody that you love, especially somebody who maybe can benefit from the conversation that you just heard. And we're very blessed to be with you. And we'll see you again next time on another episode of Living the Call. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. God bless you and thank you for listening. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.